This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, starting May 8th, wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sexuality that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. It was a bitingly cold December day in 1980 when Newport, Rhode Island paramedics raced to Clarendon Court Mansion. 54-year-old Klaus von Bülow had called to report that his wife had collapsed in the bathroom. When Deputy Chief Paul Rippa entered the bathroom around 11.20 a.m., he found 48-year-old Martha, nicknamed Sonny, on the floor unconscious. As he attempted to examine her, he was alarmed. She was cold to the touch. How long had she been on that floor? When Rippa took Sonny's temperature, it was only 81 degrees. Her pulse was 35 beats per minute, roughly half a normal resting heart rate. Sonny was alive, but just barely. They had to move fast. Rippa loaded Sonny into the back of the ambulance, and Klaus climbed in behind. The trio rushed off to Newport Hospital, and Rippa continued assessing Sonny. While he worked, Rippa kept stealing glances at Klaus. He'd had a lot of loved ones ride in the back of his ambulance. Usually, they tried to comfort the patient. Sometimes they were too hysterical to be of much help. But never before had he seen someone with absolutely no reaction. As the ambulance raced past the homes of Newport's wealthiest citizens, Klaus von Bülow sat stoically next to his wife. He didn't even try to hold her hand. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? 
Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week, we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. You can find episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Not Guilty for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. This week, we're examining the 1980 Sonny Von Bulow case. In December, she inexplicably fell into a coma, never to recover. Today, we'll examine her life as an heiress and her marriage to Klaus. When she unexpectedly fell into a coma, her children launched their own investigation into the cause. Next week, we'll follow the resulting criminal trial and the aftermath. We'll see for ourselves how the evidence matches up with the verdict. On December 22, 1980, Martha Von Bulow's doctors gave her family the bad news. The bubbly personality that earned her the nickname Sunny was gone. She was in a vegetative state beyond all hope. She was never going to wake up. Doctors were puzzled as to the cause of Sonny's condition. There was no sign of physical trauma or sudden illness, but they assured her family they would run more tests. They were determined to figure it out. Sonny's children from her first marriage, 22-year-old Annie Laurie, who went by Alla, and 21-year-old Alex von Auersberg already suspected what, or rather who, was behind their mother's condition. Their stepfather, 54-year-old Klaus von Bülow. Their mother was unhappy in the marriage, and so was Klaus. As they shared their concerns with their grandmother, Annie Lauren Aitken, they learned she didn't trust Klaus either. Annie Laurie confided that she had always wondered if Klaus was more interested in her daughter's inheritance than anything else. They held a family meeting in late December of 1980, less than two weeks after Sonny fell into the coma, to discuss the situation. For Alex, his 13-year-old half-sister, Cosima, was his primary concern. If they accepted Klaus was capable of killing Sonny for money, they couldn't let Cosima stay in his care. As Alex saw it, they needed to act, and fast. But the others wanted to take a more cautious approach. Thanks to the Von Bülow's socialite status, news of an investigation would cause quite a media frenzy. It was only worth the risk if they knew for certain Klaus had done something to hurt Sonny. As a compromise, they decided to hire a private lawyer, Richard Koo, to look into things. Koo had previously worked for the New York County District Attorney's Office. He believed in following the letter of the law, even when it led him to make unpopular decisions, like prosecuting comedian Lenny Bruce on obscenity charges in 1964. He won, 
and Bruce was sentenced to four months at Rikers Island, though Bruce died before he had to serve time. But by now, the 59-year-old attorney had put criminal investigations behind him and opened a private practice. Koo agreed to meet with Sonny's older children in his New York office on January 5, 1981. It was the least he could do to hear them out. Alla and Alex told Koo that Sonny was planning to divorce Klaus. She had told them as much herself. The only thing that seemed to be holding her back was her health. Sonny had hypoglycemia, or low blood sugar, and she had trouble controlling it. She often found herself severely fatigued. Alla and Alex weren't surprised by the talk of divorce. They didn't let on to their mother, but they knew more than she was telling them. Rumors had swirled around the New York social scene that Klaus had a girlfriend on the side, a soap opera actress named Alexandra Isles, who was 20 years his junior. When the children confronted Klaus with the gossip, he readily admitted to the relationship. He didn't see it as cheating, not exactly. He explained to Alex and Alla that he started having affairs because Sunny lost interest in sex shortly after she gave birth to Cosima. Sunny allowed him to have his needs met elsewhere, only asking him to be discreet. But Alla and Alex didn't buy this for a second. They insisted to Richard Koo that their mother would never have agreed to an open marriage, one where she financially supported her husband while he slept around, not after what she went through with her first marriage. Like a lot of New Yorkers at the time, Koo was aware of Sonny's first marriage to Prince Alfred von Auersberg, a poor but titled member of the Austrian nobility. In fact, many people in New York thought they knew pretty much everything about Sonny, a socialite who was famous for being rich. She was born on September 1, 1932, the only child of utilities magnate George Crawford. He died when Sonny was just three years old, leaving behind a $100 million fortune to his widow and daughter, the equivalent of $1.8 billion today. That was more than enough for Sonny to live her entire life in luxury. As one of the world's richest heiresses, Sonny moved in circles that allowed her to climb the social ladder. In 1957, when she was 24, Sonny married Prince Alfred. They had two children, Princess Annie Laurie, born in 1958, and Prince Alexander Georg, born in 1959. Combining Prince Alfred's status with Sonny's money could have spelled a storybook ending. But Prince Alfred cheated on Sonny repeatedly, and the marriage crumbled. While visiting London in 1964, 32-year-old Sonny met 37-year-old Klaus von Bülow at a dinner party. Klaus was a Danish-born lawyer who had fled Nazi-occupied Denmark when he was just 15. Now, Klaus worked as an assistant to oil tycoon J. Paul Getty. Sonny was taken by Klaus's sense of humor and well-bred manners, and Klaus immediately noticed Sonny's beauty and charm. The two hit it off, but there was one problem. Sonny was still legally married. Unhappily so, but 
married nonetheless. They conducted their relationship in secret for nearly two years until Sonny could finalize her divorce settlement with Prince Alfred. Being the wealthier of the two by far, Sonny allowed Prince Alfred to keep their European homes and gave him a one-time payout of $1 million, almost $8 million today. For Sonny, it was money well spent. Prince Alfred agreed to give her full custody of their children, now six and seven years old. She and Klaus married in 1966 and moved their family into Sonny's 14-room Fifth Avenue apartment, overlooking Central Park in New York City. Sonny had a second chance at a family with her children and the stepfather they affectionately called Uncle Klaus. 14 years into the marriage, the affection was gone. Alla and Alex knew their mother financially supported one philandering husband, their father. They assured Richard Koo that she was not interested in doing it again with their stepfather. Klaus had largely given up working when he married Sonny, and he had a lot to lose if she moved forward with a divorce. According to their mother's paperwork, Klaus would only get $120,000 a year from a trust fund. This would be the equivalent of around $370,000 today. Not bad for a regular Joe, but Klaus was now accustomed to a lifestyle supported by Sonny's tens of millions of dollars. However, if Sonny died, he would inherit her entire fortune. The motive here was clear. Klaus wanted two things, Sonny's money and Alexandra Isles. He could have both, but only if Sonny was dead. Ku agreed there was a motive, but was there any proof? He needed to know more about the circumstances around Sonny's coma. He asked Alex to start with the night before she was hospitalized, December 21, 1980. The family chauffeur drove Alex, his mother, and his little sister Cosima to dinner and a movie. When they arrived back at the family's home, Sunny went to her bedroom to change. A little while later, she came out and sat in the library with Alex. As the two chatted, Klaus came in and dutifully asked his wife if she needed anything. She told him she was a little hungry and asked him to heat her up a bowl of soup. About an hour later, after she had finished eating, Sunny started feeling weak. She tried to stand up, but her coordination was off and she nearly fell. Alex lifted his mother in his arms and brought her to the bedroom. He ran to alert Klaus that something was wrong and then went back to check on his mother. When he walked into the bedroom, Sonny tried to make it from the bathroom back to her bed. He rushed in to help her lie down. When Klaus came in, he assured Alex he would look after Sonny. Then Alex left and went to bed. The next morning, Alex woke up around 11 o'clock. As he pulled on his sweater, he saw his stepfather out his bedroom window. Though it was quite cold out, Klaus was crossing the lawn, coming back from walking the dogs along the ocean's shore. Alex padded down to the dining room to eat a late breakfast. He was surprised his mother wasn't there, since it was about the time she usually ate as well. 
When Klaus came down the hallway, Alex called out to him, was Sonny up yet? Klaus looked at Alex with a little confusion. He assumed Sonny would have gotten up already while he was out walking the dogs. Klaus headed to the master bedroom to check on his wife. About 10 or 15 minutes later, he came back. He didn't say anything, just motioned for Alex to follow him. When they reached the bathroom, there was Sonny, lying motionless on the tile. Coming up, the cause of Sonny's medical emergency comes into question. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now, back to the story. 48-year-old heiress Sunny Von Bulow was found unconscious on her bathroom floor on December 22, 1980. Her 21-year-old son, Alex, panicked, thinking she was dead. His stepfather, 54-year-old Klaus Von Bulow, calmly put his finger under her nose. She was still breathing. Klaus called for help while a stunned Alex stood next to his unconscious mother. As he waited for the paramedics to arrive, he processed what just happened. His mother was near death, but it took Klaus at least 10 minutes to call for help. And come to think of it, he didn't call for help. He just brought Alex into the room. Only then was the ambulance called. Thinking back to the night before, it was Klaus who brought Sunny something to eat shortly before she started feeling disoriented. He was the last one to see Sunny before she went to bed. Any way Alex looked at it, Klaus was at the center of whatever happened to Sunny. Richard Koo admitted it all seemed suspicious. He agreed to make discreet inquiries into the matter. He asked Alla and Alex to send him Sonny's medical records. If she had been poisoned or drugged, the evidence may be in that chart. Koo also wanted to talk to Maria Schralhammer, Sonny's personal maid for the last 23 years. Alla and Alex assured him that not only would Maria talk to him, but what she had to say would put aside any doubts he still had about Klaus's involvement. Ku met with Maria three days later, on January 8, 1981. Maria immediately blamed Klaus for Sonny's comatose state. More than that, he had tried to kill her the previous Christmas. On December 26, 1979, 
47-year-old Sunny wasn't feeling well when she went to bed. The Von Bulos had just finished hosting a holiday party, and it was likely just the fatigue from the festivities, not to mention the rum-spiked eggnog she enjoyed that night. But the next morning, Maria heard moaning coming from Sunny's room. It sounded to her like someone was in distress. When Maria knocked on the door, Klaus told her not to come in. Everything was fine. After anxiously passing the door several times, Maria decided to go in anyway. Klaus was sitting up in bed next to Sunny, who appeared to be asleep. But Maria heard some gasping sounds, so she rushed to Sunny's side. She tried to wake Sunny up. When she couldn't, she told Klaus they needed to call an ambulance. Klaus continued to brush off Maria's concerns. Sunny had too much to drink the night before. She was just sleeping it off. At 2 p.m., Klaus finally relented to Maria's badgering. He left a message with the doctor's answering service. An hour later, the doctor called back. As Maria listened to Klaus's side of the conversation, she couldn't believe what she was hearing. Klaus told the doctor that Sunny had been drinking heavily at the party and had been up a few times during the day to use the bathroom. Maria told Ku none of that was true. Sunny hardly drank and hadn't so much as rolled over in bed all day. The doctor, taking Klaus at his word, told him to let Sunny rest and call back if her condition worsened. Around 6 p.m., Sunny started having trouble breathing. Maria again insisted that Klaus call the doctor to come over and check on her. He arrived in the nick of time. As the doctor examined Sunny, she suddenly threw up and asphyxiated on the vomit. This caused her to go into cardiac and respiratory arrest. Sunny likely would have died if the doctor was not right there to perform CPR. He was able to resuscitate her while they waited for emergency services to arrive. When Sunny was loaded into the ambulance, she was still unconscious. She remained in a coma for the rest of the day before slowly waking up. It was a close call to be sure. It took several rounds of blood work to determine the cause of the coma. Extremely low blood sugar. Sunny was apparently hypoglycemic. Sudden onset of hypoglycemia is not common, but when it does occur, it can be severe. When she was released from the hospital on January 2, 1980, she was told to avoid foods high in sugar. Her body, for some unknown reason, now released too much insulin in response to glucose in the bloodstream. Maria told Ku she hesitantly accepted the doctor's diagnosis. Maybe it was just a medical condition, but she couldn't forget the way Klaus just sat there as Sunny was suffering, refusing to call for help. Sunny would be okay, but it was no thanks to Klaus. In early February of 1980, there was another suspicious incident. Maria was cleaning the family's New York apartment when she found a large travel bag in Sonny and Klaus's shared walk-in closet that she'd never seen before. In it, she found a smaller black pouch. Curiosity got the better of her, and she looked inside. 
she found three vials, one containing pills, one containing powder, and one containing a liquid. Alarmed, she showed the contents of the pouch to Alla, who confirmed all the prescription names on the labels were for sedatives. Alla told Maria to put it all back where she found it, which she did. But why was this bag of medicine hidden away? Maria didn't see the black pouch again until November of 1980, right around Thanksgiving. This time, it was in a white canvas bag on a chair in Klaus's bedroom. When she opened it, there was a new vial in there, insulin. There was also a needle. This made no sense. Klaus wasn't diabetic, and Sunny's hypoglycemia meant she already produced an excess of insulin. There was no reason for either of them to have the medication at their home. Maria saw the white canvas bag again, less than a month later, when the family left New York to spend Christmas in Newport at Clarendon Court. It was among the things Klaus had packed to bring with him. Maria looked in the canvas bag, and the black pouch was still there. Richard Koo absorbed what Maria was telling him, and the lines began to connect. Klaus was not concerned when his wife was very ill in 1979. Maria then found a pouch stashed away with heavy sedatives in it, and later, insulin. And Klaus took the pouch with him to Rhode Island shortly before his wife fell into a second coma. Was Sonny's coma caused by a massive sedative overdose, or was it possible someone injected Sonny with insulin? Koo got his answer when he received the medical report. Only a trace amount of barbiturates was found in Sunny's system. However, her insulin was elevated to 216 microunits per milliliter. It should have been under 25. Though they couldn't be sure, doctors theorized that Sunny's coma was caused by her hypoglycemia after eating ice cream while out with Alex and Cosima that night. As her blood glucose crashed and the insulin in her bloodstream soared, she suffered irreversible brain damage. When Koo discussed the findings with the family, Alla and Alex were not convinced this was a matter of too much dessert. They believed Klaus purposely overdosed Sonny with insulin via injection. Richard Koo agreed, but all he had was Maria's say-so that Klaus had brought a vial of insulin to the Newport mansion. She claimed she showed it to Alex, but he didn't remember ever seeing it. This was circumstantial at best. He needed hard evidence. What Koo needed was the black pouch. Alex had already looked for it both in the New York apartment and at Clarendon Court, but found nothing. He suspected it was in the closet in Klaus's study. It was the only part of the house he couldn't search because the door was locked. He never knew Klaus to lock that door before Sonny's coma. Ku knew who could help them. He called up his friend, private investigator Eddie Lambert, and hired him to go with Alex back to Clarendon Court and get into that study closet. The two men drove four hours from New York City to Clarendon Court in February of 1981, on a day they knew Klaus would be out of the house. 
They brought a locksmith along, not just to help them get into the closet, but also to serve as a witness. The three men entered the mansion, and Alex led them directly to the study. They first checked the closet door. Locked. As the locksmith inspected the doorknob, Alex rifled through Klaus's desk. In the top drawer, he found a small ring of keys. The locksmith took a quick look at them and knew right away which one fit the doorknob lock. He swiftly unlocked the door. But Eddie Lambert stopped him before he opened the closet. Lambert suggested they search the study and the room's private bathroom first. Even though Alex was a resident of the house and had a right to search the premises, anything they found in Klaus's locked closet may come into question in a court of law. It would be much safer to collect and document anything in plain sight first and only go into the closet if they had to. While searching through Klaus's desk, Alex pulled out a small medicine vial. One word on the label stood out, Valium. But that was it. This one vial, which wasn't insulin, was all the search yielded. In spite of the murky legal waters, Lambert decided it was time to open the closet. As Alex rifled through Klaus's jacket pockets, Lambert spotted a metal box in the back of the closet. Inside the box, a small black pouch. Next, the contents of the black pouch change everything for this private investigation. With Capella University's FlexPath format, you can set your own deadlines, learn at your pace, and access most coursework from anywhere at any time. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Now back to the story. Standing in his stepfather's study in the family's Newport mansion, 21-year-old Prince Alexander von Auersperg was anxious to open the black pouch he'd discovered. It could solve the mystery of what caused his 48-year-old mother's coma just two months earlier. It could also be a dead end. Private investigator Eddie Lambert dumped the contents on Klaus's desk. There were medicine bottles, a vial of blue liquid, and three hypodermic needles. Two were still sealed in their packaging, but the third was open. Looking at it more closely, it was obviously used. There was something dried on the tip, but there was no vial of insulin. Lambert and Alex searched the rest of the house for any other medication. Alex gathered several pill bottles from his mother's room and put them in the black pouch. Then they headed back to New York City. When Alex arrived at his sister Alla's apartment, she was shocked at the find. Even without the insulin, she was sure that the used needle would be their smoking gun. She put the pouch in the safe in her bedroom and called their attorney, Richard Koo. 
Ku told Alla to meet him at Sonny's doctor's office. Dr. Richard Stock had treated Sonny for years, and he would know which medications were prescribed to her and which weren't. Dr. Stock confirmed that he had prescribed sedatives to the Von Bulos in the past, but Sonny never used injections. He suggested they send the used needle to the lab to identify the substance near the tip. When the lab results came back, Dr. Stock called Richard Koo. The medications in the pouch were indeed sedatives. The substance on the needle was insulin. Dr. Stock was aghast. If Koo didn't report this to police as attempted murder, he would do it himself. Koo agreed. It was time to go to the authorities. The case landed on the desk of Rhode Island State Police Lieutenant John Riza on March 13, 1981. Alex von Auersperg turned over the black pouch. The family could step away from the investigation now that the police were taking over. Richard Koo also offered Riza all the medical reports he had gathered. The only thing he wouldn't hand over were his notes from his meetings with various witnesses. Alex, Alla, and Maria were using his services as a lawyer, and he believed attorney-client privilege protected the notes. That was no problem for Lieutenant Riza. He preferred to conduct his own investigation anyway. You cannot assess someone's credibility through a lawyer's handwritten notes. He knew he had to hear Alex, Alla, and Maria tell their stories himself. And after hearing what they had to say, Riza believed them. He sent the black pouch and its contents to the lab. Their tests confirmed what the family already knew. While insulin wasn't in any of the vials, it was on the hypodermic needle. Next, Lieutenant Riza poured over the medical records and witness statements from the first responders. One thing stood out to him, the position Sonny was found in. Paul Rippa, the emergency paramedic, noted that Sonny was found with her nightgown bunched up around her waist. Perhaps she had fallen while standing up from the toilet? But if that happened, she would have been positioned with her feet near the toilet. Instead, she was found with her head by the toilet bowl, practically underneath it. It didn't make sense. That night, Riza went home and talked his wife into helping him recreate the scene. He had her wear her nightgown and fall in various positions. In none of these falls did her nightgown ride up and her head end up by the toilet bowl. Then he had an idea. He carried his wife into the bathroom near the toilet. He gently dropped her on the floor. As she slid from his arms, her nightgown slid up to her waist. Her head landed next to the toilet, almost underneath the bowl. Riza was now convinced that Sunny did not collapse in the bathroom, but rather she was moved there later. The only person who could have moved her was the person who spent the night with her, Klaus. And that's just who Riza planned to talk to next. Lieutenant Riza drove from Newport to the Von Bulow's upscale New York apartment on Fifth Avenue. He staked it out, waiting for Klaus. At this point, Klaus had no idea anyone was investigating his wife's coma, let alone that they were looking at him as a suspect. 
Raisa didn't want to give him time to develop a story or to call a lawyer, so when he saw Klaus come out of the apartment, he made his move. Raisa walked straight up and introduced himself. He said he was investigating the cause of Sonny's coma. It was clear he caught Klaus off guard. Raisa had a lot of questions, but he didn't want to push too hard. He wanted to keep things friendly. Klaus recovered from his initial surprise at the policeman showing up, but he still seemed nervous as he answered Risa's questions. Before they parted, Risa asked if Klaus knew if Sonny took insulin for any reason. Klaus, referring to Sonny's hypoglycemia, said insulin was the last thing she needed. Risa thanked him for his time and got back into his car. He didn't get a lot out of the interview, but he didn't really expect to. The point wasn't to interrogate Klaus, but to tip the police's hand a little, just enough to let Klaus know they were looking into the incident. If he had anything to hide, Klaus would be eager to get to Rhode Island and dispose of the evidence, like the black pouch. Risa assigned a few officers to stake out Clarendon Court, waiting to see if his gambit paid off. Three days later, Klaus showed up. Shortly after he went into the house, Lieutenant Risa knocked on the front door with a few patrolmen. When Klaus answered, Risa showed him the search warrant, giving them permission to go over the mansion with a fine-tooth comb. He asked Klaus if he minded answering a few questions while the police searched. Klaus seemed unflappable. He politely led them into the drawing room to talk, while officers headed right for the study. There, they found the closet door in the study was not only unlocked, it was wide open, and a pad of paper on the desk had the words, Black Box, scrawled down. It seemed like Klaus had been looking for his black pouch. They cleared the room and continued their search of the house. Klaus, still being questioned, excused himself to use the bathroom. When he returned to the drawing room, the officers went back into the study. This time, they found the closet door shut, locked, and the note saying black box was gone. The search of the house yielded very little, but Risa didn't walk away disappointed. He wanted to know if Klaus would try to cover things up at the mansion, and it appeared that he did. After the interaction, Risa felt certain they had their man. In July of 1981, a grand jury indicted 54-year-old Klaus von Bülow on two counts of attempted murder based on the evidence presented. Klaus was immediately arrested and arraigned on these charges. He pled not guilty. Bail was set at half a million dollars. To secure his release, Klaus paid his bail in cash and surrendered his passport. 34-year-old prosecutor Stephen Famiglietti knew this would be a case like no other, the type that could make or break his career. It wasn't typical to have the media swarm a run-of-the-mill arraignment hearing. It also wasn't typical to have a defendant who could turn over such a large sum of cash for bail at the drop of a hat to avoid sitting in county lockup. Famiglietti had a reputation as a sharp prosecutor with a streetwise charm. 
As he sat at his desk at the Attorney General's office, Klaus von Bülow returned to his 14-room apartment with unobstructed views of Central Park. Both men were preparing for the courtroom fight of their lives. Meanwhile, Sunny von Bülow laid where she always was, in her hospital bed, entirely unaware of the drama that was unfolding around her. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with the trial of Klaus von Bülow. We'll follow the wild media frenzy and the sharp turn this case took when famed attorney Alan Dershowitz got involved. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Not Guilty, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Not Guilty on Spotify, just open the app and type Not Guilty in the search bar. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. In the meantime, based on the evidence presented, decide for yourself. Did Klaus von Bülow try to kill his wife, Sunny? And will the jury agree with you? Find out next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Mahler, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Charlie Worrell. I'm Vanessa Richardson.